Can you believe that it's 2015? We're getting old. <laughs> oh my goodness. It's 2015, some of us older than others. Um, I want to know where 2014 went. You know, I got this, this saying that says, you know, the older you get, the faster time goes. They're not lying. Whoever they are, they're telling the truth. Like 2014 started yesterday. It really did. And it's over. You know, and for everybody, probably almost everybody, it was in our busy year. I was just thinking about 2014 and thinking, because, you know, Suzanne and I don't know what it's like to have a year that doesn't have huge things going on. It's like we don't know how to live if unless we move to a different country or something, you know. It's always got to be something big, different house, whatever. And so I was just thinking of some of the big things, not the million little things, that went on in our life in 2014, you know. Brett graduated from high school. Josh decided to give us a five-month warning that he was getting married. Um, oh, by the way, I'm getting married in five months. Um, you know, so we got that all put together. Thank God for mothers, you know. Um, we decided just out of a whim to move. It was a whim, literally, a whim to uh, move from Grafton to Cedar. I've met Grafton to uh, Port Washington, which we're loving, by the way. My whim. She said, whose whim? Completely my whim. <laughs> but I found a kitchen that you like. <laughs> Guys, if you got the ability, love your wife and give her a kitchen, you know. And don't do what I did and tell her after, after she was busier than me at one point because I had some vacation and I redid the kitchen, like put the stuff away until it was my kitchen. Bad idea. But, uh, you know, last year we also saw, you know, Brett started college. Suzanne started a different nursing job. You know, it was a busy year. Like every one of you. If you sat back and looked at your 2014, most of you would say, well, yeah. This, this, dealt with this illness, dealt with that, you know, this kid got married, that uncle passed away, all the stuff. Busy, busy, busy um, our lives are. Then we come, kind of this magical thing happens. We just turn the page of a calendar and we go, oh, it's brand new. I don't know how that is, but it really feels like it. It's like, oh, brand new year. Well, nothing really changed, did it? just another day, but something really changed. I'm not sure how that works, but we start again. Another year, and only God knows what 2015 will hold. And I'm good with that. I don't know what 2015 holds, and I don't need to know what 2015 holds. We live by faith, and we have every reason to have an incredible sense of peace going into 2015 because we can trust the Lord. He's trustworthy. He's proven himself to be trustworthy. And so we can go into 2015 with a sense of peace. Even if you say, yeah, but my life's got some turmoil in it. Well, they all do. Some more than others. I think we want this year, honey, let's do a year with nothing big. (laughs) Nothing big. No Abraham and Sarah events or anything like that. You know, surprise, nothing big. So as we begin this new year, you know what? I want to spend this month, the month of January, the first month, although you magically turn the page and it's like, okay, it's brand new. I want to spend this first month of the year thinking about what things are the most important to us. What are the most important things? Because I know that this year most likely will be just as full as last year. I can say in January, nothing big. But last January, I didn't know most of those big things were going to happen. Didn't plan on them in the beginning of the year. It's like, oh yeah, by the way, Mom and Dad, we're getting married. You know, okay, five months of scrambling to put a wedding together. You don't plan on that stuff, you know. Um, because I think that probably this year, we'll look back a year from now and go, man, it was a, it was a busy year. And it's easy for things that should be the most important to us to be pushed to the side during our attempt to just survive the year, kind of just do life, get by, take care of grandkids, do whatever, go to the whatever thing, just kind of you just survive, go to work. It's easy to put the things on the side that really are the most important. So during the these Sundays in January, I want to spend our time giving attention to those things in our lives that I believe we want to be in first place. Or that, that at least 
I think we know the Lord would say, these are the things that I want for you to be in first place because of the best for you. So that we can live the kind of blessed and beautiful life that God intends for us. Those, putting those things in first place to become the people and experience what we're supposed to experience in Christ. So let's talk about putting first things first for the next couple of weeks in our lives as we jump into 2015. First things first. So if I was to ask you, and I was tempted to do this, but I don't do this at times because I might get an answer I don't want. (laughs) That's not good when you're up in front. And so if I was to ask this group of people, Portview Church, I'm not talking about people on the street. I'm saying us. You, You decided to drive through snow today to come to church to spend time singing songs about God and enjoying his presence with other people. You know, so I was ask you what the first or the most important thing in our lives ought to be, I'm pretty sure I would get um, the same answer from almost everybody. And I think the answer was this, would be this. Pastor Mark, the most important thing should be loving God. That ought to be the number one thing in our lives. And you would say that not because... I told you it, or you're just so smart, but you would say, well, I know something about this book, God's Word, and in this book, Jesus told us what ought to be first place. He was really clear about it. I want us to start there this morning. Grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 22 with me. I'm going to deal with this, and I'm hopefully in a way that is going to help you see this a little clearer, what this is, how this really works. Matthew 22 I'm going to talk about loving God. The first thing ought to be loving God. And what's that look like? So Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 34, let's read what, what it has to say there. It says, then, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they were trying to argue with him and make him look bad, and, and he answered them in a way that just made them, just to shut them up. And so when they heard that silence the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him, which is Jesus, a question, testing him. Verse 36, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Verse 37, he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and the foremost commandment. He goes on, but we want to stop right there. Jesus says, Yes, Jesus. Jesus, we're talking about first things first for the month of for the first month of the year. What should the first thing be? Jesus answered it for it for us. He said, The first thing is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus tells us that as we are putting first things first, the first thing that we should put first is to love God, right? Make sense? Nothing new and revolutionary yet, right? But I want us to be really honest with ourselves today. I want to deal with this in a way that I think you've thought, but you've never wanted to admit before. Okay? We're honest with ourselves today. Isn't it hard or unrealistic for God to look at you and me and make a requirement? Matter of fact, what's he called? He calls it a commandment. Somebody gives you a commandment, that means you're probably supposed to listen, right? Not a suggestion. What's the greatest of the suggestions, Jesus? No, he said, what's the greatest of the commandments, Jesus? And he says this, love me with everything in you. Isn't that a little unrealistic, a little odd? God saying to you and me and to all people on the planet, the most important thing you ought to do, the first thing you ought to do, is you need to love me. Now, isn't that kind of like an evil king in some fairy tale, who captures a beautiful princess and takes her from her one true love and confines her in the tower of a castle somewhere where he then lavishes her with gifts and compliments and promises of a happy life in order to force her to love him. But what do we find out in all the fairy tales? We find out that you can't force someone to love you, right? You know, in life, we find... You can't make someone love someone. Yet Jesus says the most important thing, the first thing for any of us who are Christians, 
to do is that we are to love God. Not just love him a little. Love him with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. To love him with everything within you. So my question for us to start off the new year is, how in the world does that work? How can God demand that I love him and then I love him? How does it work? Well, I think as we unpack this today, you're going to go, I get it. And I love him. See, friends, this is the key. It only works when we understand that we don't love God because he tells us to love him as an act of obedience. Some of you are really good obedient people. Anything you're told to do, if it's the rule, you'll do it. And you are tough enough and determined enough and you can grit hard enough, you'll get it done. But that love doesn't work that way. This only works when we understand that we don't love God because he tells us to love him as an act of obedience, but rather we love God as a response to getting to know him. We love God as a response to getting to know him. See, once someone really gets to know God, they can't help but fall in love with him. Once someone really begins to understand the depths of God's love towards them, they can't help but love him back responsively. Loving God is a response to realizing how wonderful God really is. Once we see how wonderful He is, we can't help but love Him first and foremost in our lives once we really see who He is. Friends, think of it. Who couldn't love God when they realize that He loves people so much that He created a beautiful world for them to enjoy? Now, sin has corrupted it, but it's still incredibly beautiful. Staring at the Grand Canyon, or a mountain lake, or a field of flowers, or Lake Michigan in the snow. It's beautiful. And he created it for us to enjoy. God could have made an ugly world. You ever think about that? But he didn't. You know, he made it for us to enjoy. And, and that's his ultimate plan for us, is that we would... We live in a place of abundance and, and blessing. That's why he created a garden originally and put man in there. And eventually after this whole process of sin runs its course and God brings in, he's going to put us back into a beautiful place with the tree of life. Who couldn't love him? Who couldn't love God when they realize that he loves people so much that when they reject him, he pursues them anyways and offers them forgiveness and restoration? So he says it like this. He says, you know what? The kingdom of God is like a, like a man who has a bunch of sheep, a hundred of them, and one strays off, and he leaves a 99, and he pursues the other one. And when he finds it, he puts it on his shoulders, and he has a party. Or the kingdom of God is like a person, a lady who had ten coins and lost one of them and, and swept the house feverishly until she found the one, then threw a party. Or the kingdom of God is like a father whose son rejects him and goes to a faraway land and he sits and he waits and he waits and he longs for his son to return. And when he sees his son, he runs to him and he braces him and the son has excuses. Oh, God, I did all this. He goes, be quiet. Throw a party. Fatten the calf and give him a ring and put a robe on him. That that's the kind of God we see in Scripture, who can't love a God like that? Who couldn't love a God when we realize that He chose to die for us? He made a choice to die for us. Jesus gave His life to pay for my punishment because of my sin. He did that. Who couldn't love that God? Who couldn't love God when they realize that he provides everything for us in this world? That the scripture says everything ultimately is a gift from God. He makes it rain on the, on the just and the unjust. That every good gift comes down from the Father of lights, the scripture says. Everything, whether people love him and serve him or reject him and hate him, everything comes from God. Who couldn't love a God like that? Who couldn't love a God when he accepts and loves you just the way you are? He loves the real you that you hide from everybody else. The real you that maybe your kids know at home, but no one at church knows. The real you that maybe your spouse doesn't even know about, that you live in this little world inside your head, that you know the real you. You know what you wrestle with. You know what you fight with. You know what you, the, the, the temptations you have in your life. You know what you do in private when no one's around sometimes. And he accepts and loves you just the way you are. He loves the real you that you hide from others. He says, I love you just because I made you. Church, we really begin to love God 
when we really begin to know him. That makes sense? But here's where I think a lot of problems with Christianity begin for a lot of people. And it's what makes Christianity into an empty, dead, meaningless religion. And people look at it and say there's no validity to it sometimes because they look at it in some people's lives and they go, I can change you a lick. There's a problem that comes in is this. I think a lot of people who wear the badge that says Christian, they've never really come to know God. Well, they'll say they're Christians. And I'm saying they. I purpose wrote in my notes they and I put in quotation marks. You know why? It's easier to say they than us. Because sometimes this is me and sometimes it's you. But it's easier to say they because who's they? I don't know. They is somebody out there. Maybe the person next to you, but it doesn't have to be you. But it just might be us. They say they're Christians and they want to love God. They like some of the things about the faith. Or at least they like things about the church. The music, the fellowship, the food, the teachings. You know, they like it. But they don't really know God. Maybe they know a little bit about God. They've heard a few things. Because they don't really know God, they can't respond in love back towards Him reflexively. Because they don't really know Him. So how can they respond back? So you know what I see? Is we fake it. Try real hard. Oh, did I say we? They. They fake it. They try real hard to manufacture some type of love because Jesus said, love me first. So they try to manufacture some type of love. Some type of forcing themselves to put what they believe to be pleasing to God in first place in their lives. So they keep this list of do's and don'ts, of rules, thinking this is the way to show that they really must love God. It reveals it. But if you look at it, you find something. You discover a truth that there's no, there's no joy in it. There's no desire. There's no want to. It's all about have to. So we hear these things. So I have to go to church. I have to give. I have to read my Bible. You know, It's trying to keep a commandment to love God instead of loving God in response to his love for them. So what happens? So the child grows up in a home where mom and dad serve God out of duty rather than out of responsive love. And that child develops the idea that if we do the right religious stuff, that we are putting God first in our lives because that's what he saw at mom and dad. So the child learns to go to church, at least on some Sundays, as long as it does not conflict with something else more fun. And they put some money in the offering plate, never out of want to, or as a cheerful giver, as the scriptures say, but out of have to wishing that they really could keep it all for themselves, but believing they are pleasing God by their tipping, by giving some of their leftovers to God. And they teach Junior to talk certain ways, to use certain Christian lingo. They know to call somebody brother when they go to church or sister. They've been taught, don't swear, or at least not at church or around church people, and say a prayer before you eat. All attempts... To love God out of duty. Now they don't have to be, but they could be. All attempts to love God out of duty instead of out of a response to really knowing Him. Well, this is what John was getting at when he penned the words in 1 John 5.3 and I, I think I put that on a slide. When he says this, some insight into this verse for you. He says, this is the love of God. That we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. They're not a burden. Understand. Force love may keep rules and commandments, but it's a burden. One does the right thing, but with a wrong heart. That's empty, lifeless religion. And you can put any particular religious caption on it, lifeless Christianity or lifeless Buddhism or lifeless Hinduism or lifeless whatever. But when we begin to realize how wonderful God really is, the God of the Bible, Jesus is His Son. He came to die for us. He provided everything for us. When we begin to realize how wonderful God really is, which, my friends, is an ever-evolving reality. 
I'm only now beginning to understand it just a teeny bit how wonderful God really is. But we begin to realize how wonderful God really is. Then from the depths of our heart, we want to do anything and everything that we can to get closer to him, to serve him, and to bring him honor. We want to do it. It all becomes about want to. I want to worship with my church family. You can't keep me away. Guess what? An inch of snow doesn't keep me away. Or whatever else could be going on in the world out there that sounds fun couldn't keep me away because I want to meet with God. I want to. I want to give. Because I recognize it's all a gift from Him anyway. And if I can do anything with the resources He's entrusted to me to, to glorify Him and to advance His purposes, that's what I want to do. I want to do it. I want to spend time with Him in prayer and His Word. It's not about five-minute devotions in the morning that I have to do to somehow satisfy someone. I want to. It all flows from an ever-evolving understanding of who God is, how great and wonderful God really is. Friends, that's why the Apostle Paul prayed that the people in the Ephesian church, the church of Ephesus, would get a greater revelation of God. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. You're going to go, oh, I get it. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul's praying for the church at Ephesus. And look what he prays. He doesn't pray, God, give them a bunch of money. God, make their life easy. God, take away persecution. He, he didn't pray any of those things. Look what he prays for them, recorded by the Holy Spirit and God's eternal word. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 16. Talking about himself, he says, basically you could put the word in parentheses there, I, in brackets, I, from verse 15, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. This is what he mentions. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Look what he prays for. God will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation about what? What the stock market's going to do this year? No. A revelation and wisdom in the knowledge of God, of Jesus. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe. Friends, Paul prayed that they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of of God, that they would grasp more fully who God really is and what a relationship with Him was really would really involve. He says that he prays specifically that they would know the hope of His calling and the riches of His inheritance and the greatness of His power, all wrapped up in Jesus. That's the verses after that say it's all wrapped up in Jesus. Paul prayed prayed for them to have, he says, a revelation of God's greatness. In other words, that God would reveal His greatness to them. That God would enable them, this is what Revelation is, enable them to see what they weren't seeing on their own. A supernatural activity of the Spirit of God where He reveals to us something that we don't now know. He makes it available to us. That God would open up their minds to the truth about how wonderful God is. Then they'd really begin to see Him. And then the only response can be to love him back first. See, loving him first, listen to this, loving him first reveals that you are coming to know and experience God. It works both ways. When you know him, you love him. And when you are loving him first out of want to, it reveals to you, it doesn't matter about anybody else, it reveals to you that you are coming to know and experience God. So this knowledge of God comes by revelation, he says. But Paul also says here it comes by something else. He says it comes by wisdom. That Paul prayed for a spirit of wisdom and of knowledge. See, knowledge of God comes by wisdom, by what we can learn. 
And friends, we know this. This wisdom is built upon what we discover about God in the Scriptures, in the Bible. And here is my challenge for us, Portview Church, in 2015. That starting today or tomorrow, you would begin, we would begin a journey of discovering God in His Word. That would be the objective of it, discovering God in His Word. That we spend time looking for what God is revealing about Himself and experience Him through His Word. That we would ask God to give us wisdom and revelation of Himself from His Word. And here's what I want to caution you about. Because it's become the norm of our culture and society today. And you hear it preaching pulpits everywhere all the time. The reduction of the scriptures to a textbook of principles for living a better life. It's to the point that's making me want to get sick. That all you hear in the evangelical church world anymore is when they talk about the scriptures, you take the book and say, here's three principles, how you can live right and God will bless you and you'll get rich. Or you'll have your best life ever if you just do this. I'm tired of it. That's not God's plan for His Word. The reason He gave you His Word was to reveal Himself to you. That's what the Bible is. It's a revelation of God to man. There are wonderful, great principles, and they work. But guess what? For those of you out here who say, you know what, if you just live by God's financial principles, uh, it'll all work. You know, Dave Ramsey, I'm all for Dave Ramsey's financial principles. But guess what? I park your butt in Cambodia... And it doesn't work because there's no money. You never hear a faith preacher preaching in, in Cambodia or Myanmar. They don't do it. Why? It doesn't work the same. It works in a place of abundance. It's good, wonderful principles to live by. But that's not God's plan. His plan for His Word is to reveal Himself to you. We have to stop reducing the Scriptures to a textbook on principles for just living a better life. That was never God's plan for His Word. That's what our culture has done. They've, they've gutted the Word of its beauty and its revelation. Experiencing God in the Scriptures is why God gave us His Word. Spend time with Him through His Word this year. Church, it's time to mature beyond the, the one-minute Bible or the ver, my verse for the day kind of thinking and Bible reading. God has given us His Word to reveal Himself to us through it so that as we find Him and seek Him in it, we, under, we, we, we experience Him and then we can love Him because we see who He is. Friend, that's the wisdom that we need. The wisdom, Paul said, I'm praying that you would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. You'll come to know God. I'm all for good principles, but that is not why God gave us the book. He gave it to us to reveal himself. The church has got this for centuries, but we drift away from it at times. Historically, the church has tried to help people discover methods to aid in experiencing God through His Word. They've done all kinds of really good things. I want to talk about one of them this morning. One of the ways that the church has historically used to help people discover God in His Word, not to boil it down to some principles for, for productive living, is through something in Latin called lecto divina. Ever hear of that? Yeah, if you've got a, maybe a Lutheran or Catholic background, you've heard of it. It's Latin for divine reading. And understand this, when I give you something today, I want to talk about this for a minute. It's not a magic pill. It's just an, an avenue you can walk on to help you experience something that God wants you to experience if you'll give yourself to it. In Lecto Divina, it's a method of reading the Bible. That involves listening with the heart. And it's amazing that at this time when we have more books written about God and His Word and more Bibles available than ever, the church world is having to try to look back and discover what can possibly help us to capture what we've lost. 
And this is one of the ways historically the church has, has captured the heart of God. It felt the heart of God. It's reading the Bible that involves listening with the heart. The focus of Lecto Divina is not a theological analysis of a biblical text, which is important. We do that. We must study to show ourselves approved. But in this time, it's a prayer time of with the Word. It's viewing the text with Christ as the key to its meaning. In Lecto Divina, we turn to a passage in the Bible, usually no more than a few verses, and we read it over and over, very slowly reflecting on each word and phrase, paying attention to the impact the words have on our heart, and in a way we are praying the Scriptures and allowing them to unfold before us and reveal the reality of God to us. See, the Bible says about itself, it says the Bible is alive, that it's God-breathed, and it really is. He wasn't lying. He wants to reveal himself to his church. And in praying this way, and it's just a method, you might not like it, but it's a method I like, we pray the Scriptures. And it works something like this. We, for example, you take a section of Scripture I selected the beginning of Psalm 23, the shepherd's psalm. It says this, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. The first time you read it, you just read it like that, one time slowly. You just read it through. You pause between each clause. The Lord is my shepherd. Pause. I shall not want. Slowing down causes you to do something first, the very first time through. No rushing. We live in the most rushed society in the history of the world. We do. You don't find God in hurry. Matter of fact, you'll never find God in hurry. No rushing. The desire to know God, you just sit with the text. So you read it through once slowly and you pause. Then you read it through a second time. And there's just no magical formula. You do it exactly like this. This is just an idea on how you do it. You read it through maybe a second time. You read it again slowly. And this time you pause even longer between the phrases. And you become aware of anything that begins to catch your attention. And you, kind of, you jot it down. So you're reading through and it says, The Lord is my shepherd. And you think, It's a shepherd. You jot it down. Shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He, he leads me beside still waters. And you're pausing and you're slowing quietly through it. He restores my soul. You think, does my soul need to be restored? And you jot it down. And you're just quiet with the Lord. Then you go back to it another time, a third time. And you read the passages again. And you begin to park then on those words or phrases that have stood out to you. Maybe you didn't write them down, maybe you underlined them, but you just begin to, to park there. And you spend some time there and you begin to reflect and say, the Lord is my shepherd. What would that mean? Well, he's a shepherd. What's a shepherd? A shepherd takes care of a flock of sheep. What's a shepherd do? Well, when he takes care of a flock of sheep, he provides for them, he, he protects them, he cares for them, he disciplines them. The Lord's my shepherd. And you begin to say, God, how have you been shepherding me? You begin to say, God, I want to see you as a shepherd of my life. And you begin to just spend some time parking there and, and meditating on that and pondering. What is he saying? You look for God. You say, God, who are you? He's saying, I'm your shepherd. You say, what are you saying to me? I'm protecting you. I'm caring for you. I'm providing for you. You begin to read through the scriptures that way and spend time meditating and pondering on those words or phrases that, you know, for maybe for, for you it's that he quiets, you know, he, he leaves beside quiet waters. And you go, my life's been turbulent. But God's plan is to lead me to a quiet place. As I've prayed this way through this exact psalm in the past, and I've been here a number of years ago going through some turmoil. Some of you might have remembered those days. You know how many days I walked down to this lake and I walked out to the end of that lighthouse and I prayed through this, this psalm and I said, God, you told me you'd leave me beside quiet waters and they don't feel very quiet right now. Matter of fact, they're roaring, they're beating at me, they're knocking me down and I'm just doing my best to do what you asked me to do. 
God, show me what it was. What it, what, show me who you are. You're the storm calmer. You're the one who calms the storm. You make the waters calm. And you just park there. And you just allow yourself to feel the reality. You could read Psalm 23 in what, maybe 30 seconds. Or you could spend 30 minutes in one word. What's it mean to be my shepherd? What's it mean that he calms the water? You ponder it. And you go work your way through the text, not in a rush. And you, you just pray. You just ask God, what are you saying to me in this passage? What do you want me to discover about you? Because that's why he gave us the word, to reveal himself to you. He wants you to know him. And so he gave us his word to reveal himself. He gave us Jesus, came as a human, put on divinity into flesh so that we could understand God somewhat more fully to reveal himself. That's the purpose of his word. So we, in the word, we know it's alive and it's breathing. And we pray, God, what are you saying to me in this passage? What do you want me to discover? And then you just rest in that for a while. Maybe journal about it. But just learn to enjoy being in the presence of God for a while. Because guess what? Real life is going to strike in about five seconds after you get up from your prayer closet. Real life is going to strike. The boss yells, the car doesn't start, the snow hits and you slide in the ditch, whatever it might be, it hits. So enjoy being in the presence of God. You can feel it when you're in a situation. You're praying through the Word. He's revealing Himself. You're just sitting and soaking. You've moved from doing to being. Now I know something like Lecto Divina can be a huge challenge for some of you sitting in here today. You've been taught just to be productive every second of your life. Now, you are being productive in the most important thing. But you're not being productive in a way you are working harder to be productive. You're letting the Spirit of God work in you. It's going to be a huge challenge because you don't like to sit. I'm one of you. I understand. Sometimes people describe me as hyper. Surprise. I understand. My hope is that in 2015, we can all grow in our being with God, in our experiencing the reality of God, because that's where loving God then becomes a natural result instead of a forced duty. So when he says, love me first, you go, how could I do anything else? I know you. It's a reflex It's reaction to you. Now, there's another historical way that Christians have used to focus more attention on being with the Lord and knowing Him more. And I'm going to talk about it for a minute. I really wanted to stop right where we are, but I needed to incorporate something about fasting. I'm going to talk about it for just a moment. Because it helps do the same thing. Because this is the kickoff of a week of fasting and prayer or a month of fasting and prayer. Fasting is another way that we can connect with God better than we do otherwise. Um, I just want to say this about fasting. Fasting is not about law. matter of fact, Suzanne and I set this month aside for fasting, and when we discussed discussed doing it, we said, now what are we going to do? We have some things coming up, like my father's 77th birthday. And we said, well, you know what? It's not about law. So we're going to fast this month of my father's 77th birthday, we're going to go eat pizza on that night and not feel guilty about it in the slightest bit because it's not about it's not about earning something. It's not about law. It's not forced starvation or deprivation. Through fasting, we set aside all or some food for a period of time in order to be more aware of our relationship with God. And this is how it works. And it works wonderfully. Because I've been practicing fasting for 30 years. It works wonderfully. Here's what I know about every one of you in here. 
you all think about food all the time. Some of you say, oh no, sometimes, sometimes I forget to eat. How many of you forgot to eat all last week? It's Sunday. Who didn't, Clem didn't eat one meal all last week. I don't believe it, Clem. The evidence proves otherwise. We're all alive and breathing, right? We're all alive. My heart is beating. I've been eating. Matter of fact, I ate a lot over the holidays. Anybody else eat too much? Yeah. It's all right. There's a time for feasting and a time for fasting. I believe that. We all think about food constantly. Fasting, intentionally giving up some or all food for a period of time, helps to use that continual impulse for food to be a continual impulse to turn your attention to God. That's as simple as fasting is. You have constant impulses to eat. Even when you fast, I've done extended fasts, just pure water fasts, for 21 days at a time. And after about four or five days, you're not even hungry anymore. But you know, at zero hunger, you don't have no hunger. But you know what happens? The impulse to eat is there. And I always tease, I say the same thing. I don't know why it is. A butter burger. I don't ever eat butter burgers. I'll kill somebody for a butter burger when I fast. It doesn't stop. I'm like, there's culvers everywhere. And it's like, I need to have a deluxe butter burger double with fries. You know, I have to have it. And I'm not even hungry. I'm serious, you're not even hungry. What is it? There's this continual impulse for food. Food brings us great pleasure. We don't eat to sustain life. Our lives are sustained because we eat. We eat because we enjoy it, especially as Pentecostal Christians. Everything we do is about food. And that's good. God, I love something about the Amish. The Amish love to eat. And they say this. They work hard too. That's why they're not heavy. But they say, God gave us good food to be enjoyed. And I, I agree. Isn't there a great bakery that we have, we're supposed to go to sometime, an Amish bakery that you've told me about? I want to go there. I want to enjoy it. Food is to be enjoyed. But you know what? That continual impulse for food, you use it as a continual impulse to turn my attention to God. During a fast, when I think about food, I use that as an invitation to spend that time opening my heart to the presence of God. Looking to abide with Christ right where I am, right there. Friends, you can be in the middle of a grocery store and have the impulse to eat and say, you know what, I'm not really aware of the presence of God right now. You can say, God, I want to be aware of your presence. And you know what? You become aware of his presence. The impulse to eat becomes an impulse to pray. That's, the, that's, that's exactly what fasting is all about. So you know what you do? So you set aside, you're not going to eat anything for Monday. And the first two days of a fast are the worst of a pure of a whole fast where you just give up everything but water because you're addicted to sugar and you're addicted to caffeine. So you get a headache and you don't feel good. All that stuff, you use all those as an impulse to say, you know what, this reminds me. If my body craves food this much, how much should my spirit crave the presence of God? It's an impulse. It's all it is. It just says, Mark, you remember that I'm right here? Have you really thought about me? I think about cheeseburgers, but have you really thought about God? Right? That's what it does. That's what fasting does. You use that impulse and you turn it towards seeking after God. Looking to abide with Him right where God wants us to live in a world where we abide with Him throughout our day. We're aware of his presence. That doesn't mean you become so heavenly minded you're no earthly good. As some people would say, if you become so heavenly minded where you're actually aware of the presence of God, you will be so stinking earthly good that the earth won't know what to do with you because God will use you to do incredible things in the world. And so we want to walk in an awareness of the presence of God. Fasting is, for me, the best way to do that because I'm hungry all the time. And so the impulse is all the time. It's constantly reminded me. Are you thinking about God? Suzanne and I are going to be doing a Daniel fast for January where we eat mainly fruits and vegetables like Daniel did when he went into Babylonian captivity. Um, it constantly reminds me of what I'm not eating. I found the Daniel fast for me to be the best fast because I found I'm really disciplined. I can just not eat 
just go on. Within two days, it's all done. I can go on forever. Other than thinking about the butter burger, it doesn't really bother me. I keep on going. I'm not hungry. I feel fine. No big deal. Daniel fast something different for me. I'm not hungry, but because I'm eating, I'm thinking about what I'd rather eat. I'm eating steamed peas. And I want a butter burger. And when that happens, it reminds me of the impulse of my flesh. And I want my fleshly impulses to cry out to God more than for my flesh. And so it works for me. For me, it works better. Because it reminds me of what I'm not eating. Which then becomes an invitation to connect with God for me. And I just challenge all of you to do something. Something that will cause your hunger for God, your knowledge of God to grow. Then as a result, naturally, your love for God will grow. Right? Preacher by the name of Francis Chan, some of you are familiar with him, said this recently. It was in a quote. A lot of you saw it on Facebook. I took it off of Facebook. There's good stuff on Facebook sometimes. He says, we never grow closer to God when we just live life. It takes deliberate pursuit and attentiveness. He's exactly right. You never grow closer to God when we, we, we never grow closer to God when we just live life. It takes deliberate pursuit and attentiveness. That's how we get closer to God. It takes deliberate pursuit and attentiveness. Church, we're going to close our service today, last, the first service of a brand new year, by taking communion. We recognize, we understand the elements, what the elements, the broken body represents, the, 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 the bread represents the broken body of Christ, the cup represents the shed blood of Christ. It's a, it's a, it's a, a feast of celebration where we say Jesus died for us, he rose from the dead, he wants to be so close to us that, that we, it's like ingesting him. He's that close to us. These elements are, are at the altar. They're going to be available for you to come and serve yourself in a moment. But in preparation for that, I want to read something that wraps this whole thing up from a book by a guy named James Bryant Smith. He writes this. He says, The Westminster Larger Catechism, written in 1648, opens with a question and an answer. Question. What is the chief and highest end of man? Answer. Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully enjoy Him forever. He goes on to say this. I love the concept of fully enjoying God forever. Do you think that God wants you to enjoy Him? Though many people do not believe this, I think it is what God most wants. Julian of Norwich once wrote, The greatest honor we can give to God is to live godly because of the knowledge of his love. That statement shocked me when I first read it. The greatest honor we can give to God, isn't it to die for him on the mission field? Julian offers another narrative. What God most wants is to see you smile because you know how much God loves you. My mission field narrative does not describe a God I would naturally love. Julian's narrative tells me of a God I cannot help but love. The God Julian knew is a God who delights in us. And he goes on to say this then. What if God is not mad at you? What if God were actually like the one in this narrative, a God who responds to us with absolute delight, regardless of how we look or feel or what we have or have not done? The only possible response would to feel absolute delight in return. If God is delighted in me, regardless of my performance, then my immediate response is to feel love in return. And in so doing, I fulfill the greatest commandment. Jesus said, you want to know what's first? Love me. The way we do that, it's a natural response to knowing how much He loves us. Coming to know Him more. Experiencing His goodness. Seeing His wonder. And the natural response then is I just love Him back. That's how we love God first. 
when we see how good and wonderful God is and we are amazed that He delights in us, then our response is to love Him in return. In just a moment, I'm just going to come down here. I'm going to open up the trays for communion. I'm going to say a prayer. At that time, I invite you, whenever you feel ready, to make your way forward, take the elements. You can come and find a place at the altar. You can kneel down. You can stand. You can go back to your chair. Whatever you want. Take the elements. And I want you to, to, do, it, to do this. I want you to, to talk to God and say, Lord, I, I hold in my hands, and this is however you want to word it, these symbols of your presence. And God, in 2015... I want you, I want to become so close with you. I want to learn so much more about you, God. I want to experience you so much more and have a, a, a spirit of a revelation of wisdom and knowledge about you so much that, God, my natural response is just to love you back. I want to experience you, God. Then, when you're in your seat or wherever, you can then partake of the bread and partake of the cup. Then spend some time just sitting and soaking in the presence of the Lord. And then when you feel dismissed by the Lord, just quietly make your way out of the sanctuary and go have a wonderful day of just walking with Jesus, knowing that He loves you. And He wants to help you know Him so that you will naturally love Him in return. Join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You love us. God, it doesn't even make sense to us how we could be like that prodigal son and we've run away and the instant we return back to You, the instant You have arms wide open You're waiting for us. Not only that, God, You pursue us You chase us down. And God, just maybe there's some people in here today that are feeling chased down by you. They maybe been running. Oh, everybody could think that they're doing fine. They look well. But inside their heart, they know there's a coldness. They want to know you, God. Today, reveal yourself. Reveal yourself today. Help us to experience Yourself as we take communion together. Help us to see the reality of Your presence. You said to do this communion in remembrance of You. To remember You, God. Because You're alive and You're well and You're you're not only coming back someday, but You're here by Your Spirit. So God, I pray now for this entire church family that God in 2015, that as we open up our hearts to You, that, Lord Jesus, You would so bless and minister and embrace us, flow through us and reveal Yourself to us, that this would be the greatest spiritual year of our lives. So, Lord, bless Your church now. In Jesus' name.